And let's open our Bibles, 2 Kings chapter number 4 this morning, 2 Kings chapter number 4. I want to say thank you to any visitors may be with us today. We appreciate your presence. Trust you'll be helped by being in the house of the Lord. And same thing for our home folk. Trust that God will honor your obedience to him in being here today. Second Kings chapter number 4. I want to preach to you on a passage that, if I'm to be honest, I have always struggled to wrap my, my mind around. But uh, I, I believe I've got some direction this morning. I believe, hopefully, if the Lord can do in your heart what he did in my heart when I read it, I believe our time will have been well spent here today. Second Kings chapter number 4. And uh, beginning in verse number 1, 2 Kings chapter number 4, verse number 1, the Bible says, Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. Thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house, save a pot of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow not a few. When thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons and brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay thy debt and live thou and thy children of the rest. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. I ask, Lord, that you'd help my thoughts to be clear today, my words to be clear, that you'd communicate the truth of this passage, Lord, to me and to those under our hearing today. And I pray that, Father, you would get glory out of the work that's done in us. Lord, we need the truth of the Word of God, and we need obedience unto it. We need you far more than you've ever needed us. So, Lord, help us to come with an attitude of humility, self-examination, Lord, and of desperate plea and need, desiring you above all else. Lord, we'll be sure to thank you for what takes place today, for certainly thanks will be due unto you and glory unto your name. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said a moment ago, I've always been fascinated with this passage of Scripture. And sometimes I remember hearing Brian McBride, evangelist, say years ago, talking about uh, the Lord Jesus and, and typology in the Bible. And he said, you know, sometimes the shadow is clear and is obvious. And sometimes you just see the Lord almost like the little Shunammite girl that's described in the book of Song of Solomon, sort of behind the latticework. And this is always a passage that's felt a little behind the latticework to me when I would read it. And I would struggle to understand. I could see the miracle. I can draw things from it. I'm glad the Lord can provide, aren't you? I'm glad that He's faithful. I'm glad that His stores are not empty or bare. I'm glad that His cupboards are not sparing. I'm glad He has everything that His children need. But you know, when you read the Bible, there are many, many passages that reveal to us simply that we have a God that provides. And it's obvious to me in reading this that there was something else that was going on. When you read this passage, and by the way, this is just a good rule of thumb when you study the life either of Elijah 
or of Elisha. Both of these men were prophets in Israel. And at one time, Elisha was sort of the servant of uh, Elijah. The Bible says that Elisha poured water on the hands of Elijah. Elijah was the older man of God and had been the prophet in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. And we have preached many times, no doubt you've read many times, the great miracles that took place uh, during his life. The uh, You know, God feeding him by the ravens, by the brook uh, Kidron, and uh, God uh, sending fire down from heaven to bear witness to the reality of himself whenever they were on Mount Carmel. And so many miracles and amazing things that happened in the life of Elijah. But whenever Elijah was uh, being uh, taken home to the Lord, he didn't die a natural death. God just took him on to glory. Elisha was following him. And Elisha asked Elijah, Elijah said, what can I do for you before I leave? And Elisha said, Lord, Elijah, give me a double portion of your spirit. In other words, what God's done in your life, I want Him to do in my life, but I want Him to do it doubly so. Can I just pause to say this? Man, we ought to ask big things from God. We have a big God. You're never going to ask for anything bigger than God is. We ought to ask for big things. So Elijah, says, I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah grants that to him. And Elisha steps into the office that Elijah had held. And interesting enough, when you study the life of Elisha, we find that he did twice the number of miracles that Elijah did. Elijah performed seven miracles that we know of. And Elisha performed 14 miracles that we know of. And you'll find a striking similarity between some of the miracles that are carried out. The key to understanding this passage in the life of Elisha, interestingly enough, is to lay it beside a similar miracle from the ministry of Elijah. You remember that during the famine on the land of Israel, God had hidden Elijah away uh, by the brook and had uh, fed him by ravens day by day. And uh, there came a time when the brook dried up and God told Elijah that he had instructed a widow woman of Zarephath. Zarephath was a Gentile city. That this widow woman was to provide for Elijah. And so Elijah journeys to Zarephath. He finds this widow woman and her son. They're outside the gates of the city gathering sticks. And when he sees her, he says, I want you to go in and get me a cup of water and make me a piece of bread to eat. I think that's hospitable. I think every home visit ought to come with some cornbread. Somebody say amen to that. And the woman says, well, I would love to do that for you. I can get you water. But she said, all we've got left in the house is a little bit of meal and a little bit of oil. By the way, that's enough to make cornbread. Amen. And Elijah says to her, well, go and, and do that. And she says, we, we have enough for one last meal. I'm going to make it for me and my son. And, and then we're going to eat it and then just wait for starvation to set in, wait to die. And he says, well, that's fine. Go ahead and do that. But go ahead and go make me a cake of bread first. So she goes in obedience to Elijah's words. And when she reaches in the barrel of meal and draws out, and when she reaches in the cruise of oil and dips out, there's a little bit more left over. So she goes to make some for her son and for herself. And she dips a little bit more meal out and a little bit more oil out. And you know, there's a little bit more meal and a little bit more oil in there. So next time meal time comes around, she says, well, I guess I'll make that last cake now. She dips a little more out. And wouldn't you know it, there's a little bit more left over after that. And day after day and meal after meal this went on. And the way the Bible says that the barrel of meal and the cruise of oil wasted not. And for the duration of this famine, God met the needs of this widow woman and her son through miraculous means. 
Now, we cannot help but be struck by the similarities between that miracle and this miracle. For instance, both of them involve a widow woman. Both of them involve the supernatural provision of oil. And both involve a miracle taking place. But, you know, it's not in the similarities that we actually find the most illuminating truths, but it's in the differences between these two. I began to think not just about what's the same in these two miracles, our text this morning, and then the miracle of the widow woman of Zarephath, but what are some things that are different between them? For instance, the widow woman of Zarephath is an unbeliever. She is a Gentile. She doesn't know who God is. First time she's ever heard the voice of God is when God is telling her that a prophet by the name of Elijah will come by. But when we read this passage in 2 Kings 4, we find that this woman is a believer. She is the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. Undoubtedly, she is a godly woman who knows the Lord and is well acquainted with Him. The widow woman of Zarephath, what we find is that God sought her out. She wasn't looking for God. God spoke to her. Man, I'm glad when I wasn't looking for God, He came looking for me. But in our text this morning, we find that this woman goes and seeks out God's help through the means of Elisha the prophet. We also find that what's at stake is different. For instance, the widow woman of Zarephath, it is a life or death situation. She says, I'm going to make one cake, we're going to eat it, and then we are going to die. Far as we know, the situation is not quite as dire for this woman in Second Kings 4. The widow woman, it's life and death, but this woman, it is a matter of liberty or bondage. She says, there is a debt left over that I cannot pay, and unless someone pays it, I'm going to be sold, or my sons are going to be sold into bondage. Another interesting difference between the two, when you look at the widow woman of Zarephath, it is a miracle of both meal and oil. But when we come to this woman in Second Kings chapter number 4, we find it is just Oil. You say, preacher, what's that have to do with anything? And I don't want, I don't want to tip my hand. I got more sermon to preach here. But you know, I tell you how this is starting to shape up to my seeing. When I look at this widow woman in Zarephath, I see a picture of what God did when He saved us. We weren't looking for Him, He come looking for us. It was a matter of life and death. And the meal and the oil in many ways represent to me both the earthly ministry of the Lord and the heavenly power of the Lord. The meal representing that which has come from the the kernel of corn that has fallen to the ground. That earthly, that tangible, that temporal life of the Lord Jesus. The fact that He was incarnate. Can I tell you this? Hey, listen, you wouldn't be saved without the resurrection, but you also wouldn't be saved without the incarnation. Without Jesus Christ being robed in flesh and walking amongst mankind. And oil in the Bible is very often associated with the Spirit of God. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ? The same way that you and I have a spirit and it denotes our ability to interact with God. Well, the Holy Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. And so the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the ministry of the Spirit of Christ. This first woman, she needed the meal and the oil. But we find for this second woman, it is only the oil or only the spiritual aspect of it that is in view. With that in mind, you know what we find with the widow woman of Zarephath, there is a measured starting amount. 
Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I don't know how big of a cake she wanted to make. But we understand that it is only a small portion that is denoted. Only a handful that is left there. Only a small amount. But this woman in 2 Kings 4, there is a mysterious starting amount. You say, what do you mean, preacher? It says a pot of oil. Yeah, but how big a pot of oil? I mean, listen, I've learned some of these restaurants you go to and, and they say, we'll bring you a plate of this. But there's all, all kinds of different sizes of plates. Sometimes they bring you one of them little plates of something. I didn't order that. I ordered a plate of something. Amen. I mean, I'm talking about a plate I can sled down a snowy hill on. That's what I'm looking for when I go to a restaurant. We don't know. We know that she has a pot of oil. We don't know how large it is, but we just know that it was a pot of oil. And then we find that the first woman, here's what she's asked to do, to reach in and to partake. She can't see the bottom of that barrel of meal, but she just by faith has to reach in and trust that there's enough there to meet her need. You know, that's what happened when you got saved. What the world calls evidence and proof, you didn't have. But by faith, you reached in, you leaned on Christ, you partook in Him. And you know what you found? You found He was enough to meet your needs. But this woman in 2 Kings 4 is different. She's commanded to pour out and to distribute. She's not reaching in and partaking under herself. She's pouring out that which she already has and distributing it to other Vessels. There's one more difference that's interesting. The first woman, we find that her need as it was met, what she was given was sufficient for her need. The Bible says that the barrel of meal wasted not, the cruise of oil did not waste during the days of the famine. Presumably, there came a point that that ceased being provided for her. But we find that this woman in 2 Kings 4, that she lived the rest of her days on what was provided for her. They say, preacher, that's interesting. I appreciate the Bible lesson, but what does that teach us about the Lord? Well, I'm reminded of a passage in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to what Ephesians 5.18 says. It says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What was this woman's responsibility? She had a certain measure of oil. We don't know how much, but we know it was enough. She was commanded to find every vessel that she could, every every empty pot she could find, and take of that which had been given to her and pour it into every single vessel, filling them over and over and over again. You see, I think in many ways what we find with the first woman is a picture of the saving work of God when He saves us from our sins. But I think what we find in this woman is the filling of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer through yielded obedience unto Him. Now let me make a few statements before we get into the preaching. I want to define what I mean by being filled with the Spirit. I don't mean speaking in tongues. I don't mean being slain in the Spirit. I don't mean holy laughter. I am decidedly against holy laughter. There's been a few times I partook in unholy laughter. But I'm decidedly against holy laughter. It's not biblical. There's no model for it. When I'm talking about being filled with the Spirit, I'm not talking about uh, receiving some supernatural superpower granted to you to make you an invincible Christian. I'm not talking about a Nazarene second blessing. You say, all right, preacher, then what do you mean by being filled with the Spirit? I mean yielding your agency to the authority of the Spirit of God in your life. In other words, to be filled with the Spirit is to empty yourself of self. 
to say my life's not about me, my choices are not about me, but I will yield, I will give the right away to the Spirit of God to govern and to direct and to guide my life. I fear that in many ways we've allowed the charismatics to scare us off of preaching a very biblical doctrine. It is not just recommended to you, it is commanded of you and of me to be filled with the Spirit of God. And when I read this woman's account, when I read this story involving her life, I find in many ways, let's just run back through them. Hey, listen, being filled with the Spirit isn't something for an unbeliever, it's for a believer. Hey, whenever I got saved, God sought me. But if I'm going to be filled with the Spirit, I'm going to have to seek God. Uh, The matter of life and death or whether I die in my sins or go to heaven, it's not a matter of being filled with the Spirit. It's a matter of the new birth, being born again. But now if I'm going to live in liberty or in bondage in my life, that very much is a matter of whether I'm filled with the Spirit of God. I don't need the meal, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ reapplied in my life. That was applied when I got born again. I don't need that again. And He indwelt me by His Spirit. But day by day, I certainly need a refreshing from the Lord. And I certainly need to yield myself under the leadership of the Holy Spirit day by day. Whenever He died for our sins and paid the price on Calvary's hill, there was a measured starting amount. He paid the price that was necessary. And I don't have to go back and drink from that well again. But when it comes to the Spirit of God, there is a mysterious starting amount. You say, preacher, why is that? Because I don't know what my days hold, but I know that there's enough of the Spirit of God in my life to lead me no matter what takes place. Whenever I got born again, it's because I reached in and I partook. But if I'm going to be filled with the Spirit of God, I've got to learn how to pour out and distribute to the various areas of my life. And I find this, that salvation was sufficient for the need. He saved me, and I'm eternally saved, and I'll never have to get re-saved. But I find if I'm going to live my life in obedience to the Lord day by day, then I'm going to, for the rest of my life, have to learn how to lean upon the Lord. In many ways, we find in these disparities the key to this message. And I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, filling every vessel, every vessel of your life. Here's our problem. Very often we'll come into a service, we'll sit, we'll hear preaching, God will rest our heart about a matter, we'll come down and we'll yield that thing to God. But then very often we get up, go back to our pew, completely oblivious to the myriad of other things in our life that God has no part in and has no part of. Here's what this woman had to do if she wanted liberty. She had to fill every vessel. Not just one, not just two, not just the big ones, not just the pretty ones, but every vessel in her life had to be filled if her needs were going to be met. Notice three things with me this morning and then we'll be done. Let's say a word first off about the anguish of this woman. Verse number one, we find her cry given. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. Now knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. We could say this, that this passage is marked by three things. It is marked number one by a death, a dead loved one. She says, thy servant, my husband, is dead. He's not an unrighteous man. It says, thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. It's marked, number one, by death. Number two, it is marked by a debt. 
We could say it this way, a dead loved one, but we also see that a debt has been left. There is something that she cannot pay in light of and in lieu of his death. And then number three, it is marked by a detainment. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, she says, this is the reason the creditor has come, to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. Now you say, preacher, that's interesting. What does that have to do with my life? Well, I don't know about you, but when I read that, my mind immediately went to the book of Romans. Listen with me, turn with me, in fact, to Romans chapter number 7. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul talks about a, a believer's relationship to the law and the Spirit of God. And he talks about, he gives several illustrations as to what the law is like in their life. For instance, he describes it as a sovereign that is dead. He describes it uh, as a uh, as a servant that has been released. But he also describes the law as a spouse that has died. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 7, verse number 1. He says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Now, he's talking about the law of God. He's talking about the Old Testament. But he's also talking about man trying to please God through the energies of himself. He's saying the reason the law is over you is, is all the days that you live, it has authority in your life. And then he gives this illustration. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. I've heard lots of preachers preach on the topic of marriage here. I'm not offended by that. That's fine. But that's also missing the larger point. Verse 4 says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law, by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members, our appendages, our arms, our legs, to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. When I read about this woman and her husband dying, it's a reminder to me that when I got born again, I died unto the law. Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, you're a Gentile. You never kept the law. And that's true. I never kept the law of commandment. But all kinds of people live today uh, in obedience to the law of conscience. Well, I just simply I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to make my way through. I'm trying to be the best that I possibly can. I thank the God of glory for the day that He delivered me from trying to be the best that I am. He showed me that in and of myself, in my greatest state, my righteousness is but filthy rags. And I learned that in the energies of my flesh, I can't perform anything that would please God. And so in a similar way to this woman, her husband is dead. She now is freed from his authority. But there is a problem. He has left a debt 
for her. In other words, that freedom and that liberty did not enable her to live, but it just robbed her of the breadwinner in her home. You know, it reminds me whenever I uh, try to work in the energy of my flesh, I may be dead unto the law, but the law is not unrighteous. The law of God is not unholy. All it did was expose the unrighteousness of my flesh. And though I may cease to try to live in obedience to the law, that doesn't make me righteous. That just exposes my unrighteousness. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, this dead loved one, this woman's husband, in many ways pictures the law. And she is now dead unto the law. But that doesn't solve her problems. That creates problems because now there is a creditor. You know who that creditor is? That creditor is the flesh. You know, you owe a debt to that flesh. And if you don't think you do, you just try to ignore him for a little while. He'll ring your phone. He'll remind you that he still has a hold on you. He'll remind you that he still has authority and jurisdiction in your life. And he'll show up demanding what is his. Preacher, how do we deal with that? Well, what happens if the creditor is not dealt with? Well, we find this. This is why the creditor came, to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. You know, there's a lot of Christians living in bondage today. You know why? Because they're trying to be righteous through resolve and resilience and not through reliance. You know that it's not just through you trying your best or doubling down or learning discipline or or getting your act together. That's not what's going to make you righteous. Because all of that is just acknowledging your feebleness and inability to be righteous in the first place. Funny thing about it, if people could be good without God, they would be. Oh my, I'm going to say that again. I don't think there's any atheists in the room, but if you know one, say it to them. The problem, the atheists say, well, I can be good without God. Then why aren't you? Why aren't you then? The reality is this. Man can't be good without God. And a Christian cannot be righteous without the the evidence of and without the influence of the Spirit of God in their life. See, there's a lot of Christians walking around in bondage. They're living in constant anxiety and fear. They don't measure up. They don't meet the bar. They don't make people happy. And they're living their entire life trying to do homage to and pay this debt in the energy of the flesh when the fact is they're never going to pay off that debt. You're never going to get that flesh to quit bothering you. You're going to have to learn how to deal with it. There's never going, you can't go to church enough to get your flesh to quit bothering you. You can't pray enough to make your flesh quit bothering you. It's always going to bother you, so you're going to have to learn how to deal with it. Now, how do we do that? Well, the Bible instructs us in Romans 8. Paul continues this conversation. Verse number 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not... It doesn't say who keep the law. It says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Let me just put it down in real plain language. If your definition of Christianity is you doing your dead level best to look like a Christian, act like a Christian, sound like a Christian, and smell like a Christian, you've missed what Christianity is all about. 
Christianity is not about you saying, I want to emulate and imitate what I think a Christian looks like. That's what we call cultural Christianity. Having a superficial form of Christianity. Rather, what Bible Christianity is, is you yielding the authority and agency of your life up to the Word of God and the Spirit of God and leaning upon Him daily to instruct you and guide you in the way that you ought to go. It's not saying, God, I got this. It's saying, God, I need you. It's not like some petulant 16-year-old child saying, I know, I know. Some of y'all, I saw some of you all, you all grown parents, you, you had, with grown kids, you had PT, you had a PTSD moment when I said that. Some of y'all twitched. I said, I know. Some of y'all, so dad started to take his belt off. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, we do that to God a lot. Now, son, listen, you're making this decision. I don't think it's wise. I know. Now, 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 son, have you really prayed about this? I mean, are you sure this is what's... But I know. I know. Now, son, I see that you're struggling. If you're going to get any help, you're going to have to let me help. I know. I'm okay. I've got this. You know what that is? That's operating in the energy of the flesh. Using intuition. We preached a little bit about it on Wednesday night. Using intuition as your God instead of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. That's operating in the energy of the flesh. And we find in this woman's life that she had two paths ahead of her. She could try to work off that debt. She'd try to scrounge and steal and save. Or she could let God do for her what she could never do for herself. We find the anguish of the woman. But I want you to notice the answer of the prophet. Look how God instructs through Elisha this woman. Verse number 2. We find there's three things here. Number 1, there was an inquiry. Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. Notice there's two searching questions here. The first is as to her request. He says, what is it that you want me to do? Now, I think to be honest, there are two perspectives or two applications of this question. I think really what Elisha is probably intending to say here is, what shall I do for thee? In other words, I can't solve this problem for you. You're going to have to, you and the Lord, solve this problem. Can I tell you something? I hate to tell you this. There ain't no secret sauce. Listen, the the colonel's recipe ain't going to cut it. You can find a formula for Coca-Cola. It ain't going to make you a better Christian. There is no secret sauce that you can buy all their books. You won't find anything. You can go to their seminars. You won't learn no secrets. Uh, you, You can listen to all their podcasts and all their sermons and try to ferret out the secret sauce, the secret way of being the superstar Christian. Uh, You ain't going to do nothing but lose money and buy them a bigger mansion. The truth of the matter is, can't nobody, can't nobody, can't nobody do for you what only God can do for you. And if you're thinking, well, if I go to the right preacher, he'll straighten me out. No, I'm sorry. I'm going to answer you just like Elisha did. What shall I do for thee? If you think going to the right evangelist is going to straighten you out, I'm sorry. They're going to have to say the same thing. What shall I do for thee? Then I think there's a second application here. And you know what it is? I think he wants her to acknowledge and confess what it is she needs. He wants her to admit that what she needs is supernatural and that what she needs, she does not have the wherewithal to accomplish herself. You know, it's not till we admit we can't that God can. A lot of God cans are waiting on us to say, I can't. 
There's a lot of things that if we just get out of the way, you've heard this illustration before, but anybody that teaches rescue and, and lifeguards and things like that will tell you that the first thing you have to do when you go to try to rescue a drowning person is get them to quit trying to swim. Because if they try to swim, they'll take down you and them both. And there's a lot of people drowning because they won't quit trying to swim and take God's hand. This woman had to admit, I can't fix it. Me trying to fix it is only going to make it worse. We're living in a society now where the surest way to go broke is by trying harder. Ain't that right? <laughs> Listen, I, the, if, if government quit robbing me of everything, I might be okay. But while those robber barons are doing what they're doing, I, we live in a society that, and, and some of y'all is going to say amen. If you won't say it with your lips, you'll say it with your heart. Uh, that sometimes it feels like the harder you try, the deeper you go. That's by design, by the way. They ain't, they ain't getting no poorer. <laughs> and those that ain't trying ain't getting no poorer because you can't get no poorer. <laughs> Uh, but those that are trying and laboring and trying to do right and trying to do better, very often they're the ones that it's like it's a vacuum. It's like it's sucking you in. And often in our life we get into this thing where we say, Now, preacher, I'm going to try. I'm going to double down. I'm going to do better. Instead of just admitting what we should have admitted in the first place, I can't do it. It's not in me. It's not of me. I, I, I can't. Like Joseph said, it is not in me, but God shall. I, I can't do it, but God can. The first was as to her request. The second was as to her resources. He says this, Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. Now, why would Elisha ask this? Maybe Elisha didn't even know why he asked it. Maybe just under direct guidance of the Lord, he asked this question. But the meaning is clear. You've got in your house what you need. You just have to let God do something with it to see something change. I'm going to tell you something. When you got born again, when you got saved, you didn't get put on the layaway plan. You got it all. He gave you everything. He gave you all of Himself. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You didn't just get part, and like the Nazarenes, you're waiting on a second blessing. He gave you all of Jesus when you got born again. If you're waiting for some great supernatural happening to occur to make Christianity easy for you, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But the truth of the matter is, when you got born again, you were given everything you need to live the life that God expects of you. And as such, instead of looking everywhere else for somebody else to do it, we've got to start not looking inward in the sense of to our own selves, but looking to that which we've been given through God, the Spirit of God that indwells us recognizing there's no secret plan, there's no secret process, there's no spe uh, special sauce that can be given. There, there, there is no magic recipe, but rather it's through what He's already allowed us through the purchase of the Spirit of God. There is an inquiry that took place. Notice number two, there was an inventory. She says, I have one pot of oil. Now she thought the problem was she didn't have enough oil. Elisha says the problem you got is you ain't got enough pots. <laughs> You're... <laughs> problem ain't that you ain't got enough oil. The problem is you ain't got enough pots. If you had more pots, you'd have more oil. Wonder in our life how many times that we're wanting God to just overflow us and spill out on the floor and He's waiting for us to grab another pot in our life. Now let me just be real plain about what I think these pots represent. They represent the areas of our life in which we need to pour God into. You say, well, preacher, she goes and gets her neighbor's vessels. Yeah, you know what that reminds me? She, she grabs hold of every pot that she can. 
That's what he says. He says, go borrow them from your neighbors if you got to. Borrow every vessel that you can. Don't borrow a few. Get your vessels. Get everyone you can lay your hands on. Get them because God wants to fill them. We have a bad habit of fencing God in in our lives. We want Him there, but we just want Him there. Not over there, not over there, not over here. We want Him there, right where we can keep Him nice and safe, where He won't disrupt the various indulgences that we enjoy in our life, the various sins that we entertain in our life. We want to, we want to take Him and like a prize steer, fence Him in and keep Him somewhere. And God ain't interested in that. Here's what we need to do. You want, you want liberty in your life? You want victory in your life? You want a life that, that God can use? You're going to have to tear down the fences and go get every vessel for Him to fill. She had to say, well, how many vessels I got? I just got the one and it's full. Then go get more. Find every vessel. Look under every single rug, every single blanket, every single curtain. Look everywhere you can find and find if there's any empty vessels anywhere. Those are the ones that God wants to fill. We want to come to church with our pot of oil and say, look at that. Look at this pot of oil. It's polished up. Look at it filled to the brim right there. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, for some of us, that pot is doctrine. We got our doctrine straight down. I'm proud of you. I'd rather you believe right than believe wrong. But that's just one pot. For some of us, it's our family. God's blessed us and, and our family has harmony and, and God's using our family in a great way. That's wonderful. That's just one pot. For some of us, it's service. We're serving the Lord. We're doing something for God. Praise the Lord. I'd rather you, I'd rather you be on fire than lazy. But that's just one pot. And we think that church is show and tell. It's a place for us to bring our one pot to and show it to everybody and say, you ever seen a pot like that? That is a pot that's bigger than your pot. It's better than your pot. Did you notice that? My pot's got handles. You don't have no handles on it. And that's what we think church is. Let me tell you what church really is. It's really us dragging and grabbing and scranging and finding and searching for every empty vessel in our life and coming and saying, Lord, fill it up. God ain't interested in the full vessel. He knows you got a full pot. Go find the empty ones. Go look in areas of your life where God doesn't have victory. Look in areas of your life where you're struggling. Look in areas of your life where you're not what you ought to be. And bring those pots to the Lord so that He can fill them and use them for His glory. There was an inventory that had to take place. And then there were instructions that were given. Verse 4 says, When thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. This is interesting. God didn't need the help of the widow woman of Zarephath to fill the barrel of meal and the cruise of oil. But here he enlists the agency of, the participation of this woman. In other words, God said, all you have to do to the widow woman of Zarephath is reach in and it'll be there. But for this woman, he says, if you want a miracle to take place, you're going to have to take that which you already have and pour it out. You're going to have to take it and do something with it. You're going to have to participate in this process. A lot of us are sitting around waiting for Christianity to happen to us. We're waiting for it to happen to us. We're here. We're ready when it does. A lot of snake oil salesmen on TV have taught us that's what happens. Uh, a, a, a lot of evangelists with, 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 <laughs> oh my, with more portfolio than consecration 
have taught us that that's what happens in Christianity. Why you just sit back and wait for it to happen to you. That's not what happens. If your life is going to be something for God, and I'm not talking about getting saved. Glory to God, I'm glad I wasn't looking for Him. I'm glad He saved me and I didn't have no part in it except to let Him save me. But if my life's going to be something for Christ, I'm going to have to participate in that process. There were instructions that were... It wasn't just going to happen. This woman had to be obedient. Now, by the way, God didn't say manufacture the oil. He didn't say go out and, and pick the olives and, and stomp on them like Lucy and Ethel and squeeze them out and, and make it... No. But you are going to have to be obedient. You are going to have to be willing. And you are going to have to participate. You're not going to become a better Christian by just waiting on it to happen to you. You're going to have to surrender your life to the Lord. I see the answer of the prophet. Then I see the abundance of the oil. I'll mention this and be done. Look at verse number 5. In verses 5, 6, and 7, we find three instructive things about how this happens in our life. Verse 5, the Bible says, So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. Won't you notice, number one, the privacy of this process. Now, let me be very careful here. It's not that it's a secret. If it was a secret, God wouldn't have wrote it down in His Word. But it's that the work of this happening did not happen out in the public square. The work did not happen in the marketplace. The work didn't happen in the temple. And it didn't happen in the synagogue. The place that the work happened was behind closed doors. You know, in the New Testament, Christ likewise talks about activity behind closed doors. And He talks about our prayer life. He says when you pray, you ought to go into your closet and shut your doors behind you. He's not teaching us to be embarrassed to pray in public. But He's letting us understand that the real work of prayer happens in private. And in your life, here's the truth of the matter. If you're going to be what God expects you to be, it's not going to be because you go to a revival and it's a tearjerker and you fall on an altar. And I'm not, I'm not being cynical about any of that. I, I, listen, God gets hold of your heart. You ought to be on the altar. I, God, uh, oh, uh, the, it'll come to me here in a moment. Old Maze Jackson used to talk about the Lord getting a hold of him. He said, God, grab hold of my heart and squeeze and tears come out my eyes. Man, I praise the Lord for God moving on hearts. I, I praise the, God, uh, the, the Lord for getting a hold of people's attention. But understand that what happens here is not where it ends. What happens here is where it begins. And it's when you go home and you pull the doors closed behind you and you get on your face before God and you get your face in your Bible and you read and get the Bible in your heart and let God stir your soul and let Him do the the deep work of planting. Let Him come till your heart and turn over the soul of your life. That's where the work is really done. I see the privacy of this process. It took place behind closed doors. But then notice number two, the consistency of it. Look at verse six. It says, And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more, and the oil stayed. Now here's how we think of our life. If we were doing it, we'd sit down and we'd count all of our vessels. And we'd say, I have 231 vessels to fill. And as we filled one, we'd say 230, 229, 228. Our focus would be on what we've accomplished, and our focus would be on the finish line. We find that that's not this woman's attitude and spirit. She's not focused on the last vessel. She's focused on the next vessel. So much so that when the last vessel comes across, it wasn't because it was the last vessel. 
It was simply because it was the next vessel. And she looks back at her boy and says, bring me another one. And he says, mama, there ain't no more left. You filled every single one. But it didn't happen by her looking at the magnitude of it, taking in the scope and saying, I'm going to fill them all up. It started by her saying, hand me the next empty one. And one by one, she filled every vessel in her life. You know, in your life, we oftentimes, sometimes we'll do a post-mortem on our life, find out it's a mess, find out that things aren't the way that it ought to be. And if you're like me, I like lists. I used to not like lists. Then I started pastoring. And I learned you can't get anything done without making lists and and and, and having a sort of self-discipline. I like to make lists. I like to break big projects down into digestible pieces and take them step by step. It helps me with my process. And, and very often in life, if you're a planner and if you like to do things that way, you look at your life and you say, now I've got this out of line and this out of line and this out of line and I'll work on this and then I'll do a little work on this and then I'll do a little work on this and I'll have this holistic approach to straightening my life out. But you know, that's not really the way that it happens. Here's how it happens. Reaching for the next empty vessel. My prayer life's a mess. God fix it. My soul winning is non-existent. God make me a soul winner. And one by one you reach and grab vessels, pouring all of your attention into it and letting all of the Spirit of God take control of it. And here's the reason that it's a problem with looking at that inventory. Because while this vessel got filled up, you done drank out of that vessel. While this one got filled up, you done cooked out of that vessel. While this one got filled up, this one done tipped over and fell. So rather, here's where the attention needs to be on a consistent life of day by day reaching for the next vessel. Say, but preacher, God just got a hold of me about this. Praise God, set that vessel over there, reach for the next empty one. Preacher, I think things are doing pretty good right now. Are you sure? You don't have any empty vessels in your life. Nothing in your life that if you were to be on... Well, preacher, they're not plumb empty. Why can't they be full? Preacher, they're not plumb empty. I do pray. Why can't it be full? Preacher, it's not plumb empty. I Sometimes, if I'm led, I witness to someone. Back in 1984 was the last time I did it. Why can't it be full? Here's what happens, consistent, methodical. Lord, what are you speaking to me about today? Lord, what are you doing in my life today? I see the consistency of the pouring, but then notice verse 7 and I'm done. I see the sufficiency of the provision. Then she came and told the man of God. That's interesting. You know, up to this point, she doesn't know what's going to be done with it. And you know, in your life and in mine, that's how it works when God gets a hold of us. We don't yield to Him because He showed us how much all that oil's worth. We yield to Him because He commanded us to do it. You probably won't ever know the, the, the lengths to which God will use your life. But that's not why you do it in the first place. You do it for the same reason this woman did it. She had a great need and the Word of God instructed her to respond to it in this way. So she doesn't know what's going to happen. But when she's done, there's no more vessels. She came and told the man of God. And he said, go, sell the oil and pay thy debt and live thou and thy children of the rest. Notice there were two things this was fit to do. One was to pay the debt. Get that creditor off her back. Now she could go in debt again, sure enough. But the key to getting the creditor off her back was to have enough oil to satisfy the demands of that creditor. The Bible tells us if we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We think if we don't walk in the flesh, we'll invite the Spirit. 
But that's not what the Word of God says. The Bible says if we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In your life, the way that God gets a hold of you is not by you saying, well, I'm going to clean me up and then maybe God will think I'm worth doing something with. It's by you recognizing that apart from the help of God, you can't clean yourself up. And you yielding unto the Lord and letting Him do in your life what you cannot do. And as you let the Spirit of God... The Spirit of God ain't never led no one to sin. Ain't never never led no one to unrighteousness. Ain't never led anyone to to, to uncleanness, to, to iniquity. If you'll follow Him, He'll lead you right. He'll lead you right. It paid the debt. But then notice what Elphinstead did. It didn't just pay the debt, man. She was able to live of the rest the rest of her days. I want that to happen. That's my sincere heart's prayer is that one day someone would give me enough money I'd never have to work again. That's spiritual, isn't it? Some of y'all, that's your plan. One of these days you're going to find the right, the right store to slip and fall and hurt yourself in. and That's going to be it. You're going, you're going to be set the rest of your days. Preacher, don't poke fun. I ain't poking fun. As long as you tithe off of it, I'll join with you in prayer that that happens. (laughs) Here's the reality. What she needed the rest of her days was what she needed that first day. What she needed the rest of her days was what she needed that first day. You say, but preacher, what if other debts came along? There's enough oil. But preacher, surely there'd be other needs. There's enough oil. There was enough there. Whatever the need was, she could always get more of that oil and sell it and meet whatever the need in her life. The preacher, I don't know what's coming down the pike. Isn't it a good thing God does? And He has equipped you with what you need to face anything that may come. But you're not going to be able to do it in the energy of your flesh or in your own strength. You're going to have to do it through the governance and leadership and instruction of the Spirit of God. Say, preacher, I'm waiting for an awakening. It's not what you need. Preacher, I'm waiting for an epiphany. That's not what I need. Preacher, I'm waiting for an experience. That's not what you need. Here's what you need. You need to bring your empty vessels to the Lord. Say, now, Lord, fill them. Fill them. Every area of my life that you're not totally in and totally is about you, I want it to be about you. Every area of my life where where I may be three-quarters of the way up, but it ain't full to the brim. Lord, I'm not satisfied with that anymore. I want you to have all of me. I want you to have everything. And if you'll do that, you know what you'll find? You'll be amazed what God can do in your life. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. If the Spirit of God has dealt with your heart about something, would you meet Him in this altar? Would you would you meet the Lord in that? Bring your empty vessels. Bring them to the Lord. Preacher, you don't understand. I, I got brokenness. Good, good. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord. Preacher, I, I'm not everything I ought to be. Me neither. Go ahead and bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord. Whatever it is, bring it to God. Bring that empty vessel. Preacher, I'm doing pretty good. Are all your vessels full? Everyone. That prayer vessel full. That witnessing vessel full. That faithfulness vessel full. That, 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 that reading the Word of God vessel. That, that's full. Everything's full. There's no room. If there's even a little room, why don't you bring it? He'll fill that vessel up this morning. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.